If you are able, remain standing just a bit longer. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Thank you guys for leading us this morning as we get the chance to sing to the Lord. We're grateful for you guys and for your skills. It's good to see Doug and Elaine as well. And, and uh, work has already begun on our end to, to go up there in July, Lord willing, and to do Bible school, help out however need to. And so if you are interested in that, if you'll, if you'll see me and let me know you might have an interest in traveling with us to Wyoming this year. I want to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 19. And uh, for now, I'll stop at verse 12, but then hopefully we'll be able to resume and finish out the reading of the rest of the chapter. But for now, this is God's word for us, and this is what God says. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the whole earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For... On the third day, the Lord will come down uh, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. There is no word like your word. And so now as we look at your word, we pray that by the very same Holy Spirit that penned these words through Moses, that you would be present with us at work in our hearts and in our lives, changing us. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, we now begin a new segment of the book of Exodus. In this new segment, beginning in chapter 19, all the way down through the end of the book in chapter 40, um, there's two things primarily going to be in play. Uh, first, what we'll see here in kind of a, a preamble kind of way in chapter 19, but particularly in chapter 20, there's the giving of the law, and then what follows in terms of case law uh, immediately after that. And, and then, in, in chapter 25, there's the instructions and the building of the, of the tabernacle. And uh, so, we're going to, at times, slow down in this next segment. And at other times, we're going to speed up. So, for instance, beginning, we will probably spend uh, 11 weeks in chapter 20. And then we won't spend more than 10 weeks in the rest of the book after that. So, so we're about to slow things down. But this morning, chapter 19 serves as a very important um, context to frame uh, how we should begin to understand uh, the law and the, what we call the Ten Commandments or what Moses called the Ten Words. And two things I want us to think about from chapter 19. First of all, I want us to see, primarily from the verses that we just read, something of the mission from the Holy Redeemer. And then we touched on it a bit in our reading through verse 12, but we'll pick up and read a bit further, hopefully, and we'll see something about the meeting with the Holy Redeemer. First of all, the mission from the Holy Redeemer. They are now at the base, in essence, of Mount Sinai. This is where they'll be for the rest of the book of Exodus and on into some of the even subsequent books. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and before he begins to lay out what's next... What he says in verse 4 serves as a bit of the grounds or the foundation for what he wants his newly redeemed people to be about, to do. Uh, and he says it in verse 4 in just a, a, a beautiful poetic way. Uh, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And then what he says next how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Well, that's one way to summarize the first 17 chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, that, that God descended as an eagle and, and put the Israelites on his wings and flew them away uh, to himself. Um, the Lord in essence, has done good to Israel and done good for Israel. The Lord had rescued, delivered Israel from Egyptian captivity. And yet what I want you to notice is that um, there was an end game, uh, a, a design in, in what he was really about in delivering Israel from Egyptian captivity. He didn't set them free so that they could begin to live independently of him. He set them free, mounted them up on his wings like an eagle, and he brought them to himself. The Lord rescued Israel that Israel might live in relationship with him. 
Now, that's, that's always the ultimate goal of God's rescuing, redemptive work. Even if we, if we fast forward and think of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in redeeming people like us, there is an end game in why he redeems people like us. Now, he does a lot of things uh, in the process of the end game. So, for instance, when the Lord laid his life uh, down at the cross, he took our sins upon himself and he paid the curse, the penalty of our sins, so that we might be forgiven. But, but forgiveness is not the end game of Jesus' rescuing work. Forgiveness is an important component to bring about the end game. Why is it that our sins need to be forgiven? Our sins need to be forgiven so that we could live in relationship with the God who rescues and redeems. He rescued Israel from Egyptian captivity so that they would belong to him, so that they would now be his people, so that they would now live in relationship with him. And that's, that's, that's no different than how he deals with us, his people uh, today. The ultimate goal, the ultimate good, if you would, of God's rescuing work uh, on the Israelites is so that they would live in relationship with the Lord. And then he says, with that foundation, so I brought you to myself. You're, you're now mine. You now belong to me. And what he begins to unfold in verse 5 and in verse 6 is something of their mission, something of their assignment. What, it is, what is it that they are to now be about? What is it that they're now to do as his people? The first thing he says in verse 5, and I'm going to come back to verse 5 in a minute, but we'll read that one first. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So there's a, there's a condition here. Verse 5 spells out that, that condition. Uh, to, uh, and, and yet what he begins to do is to specify what their new status with him consists of and what role they are to play in that new status. Okay. So what's the new status? He says, um, you shall be, second part of verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. I, the whole thing belongs to me. But you, you, you are my treasured possession. Another way of saying that is, you're my personal treasure. Now, that, that may strike us as an odd phrase. It, 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 it might strike us as an odd phrase because it might make, it, make Israel feel like they're just like a, a thing or a commodity. You know, like, you're my favorite pocket watch, you know, something like, that, something like that, you know, and that's, he's not really referring to them as a treasured possession, as a mere commodity, no, this is, this is, this gets kicked up beautifully a whole nother level and a whole other notch. To explain what I think the scripture teaches us about this phrase treasured possession is, let me just ask you, um, what is your most treasured possession in all the earth? Now, 
if you have children or grandchildren, there's your answer, right? I mean, at least that's how you should answer the question. So, uh, our children, our grandchildren, especially our grandchildren, but our children, they are our most treasured possession. And is there anything more precious to us? At least there ought not to be. And certainly the Lord knows how to get this right. But, but, but that's really actually how the Scripture uses this phrase as well. We can reach back in Genesis 1 and 2 when God is making uh, man and, and he's making man in his own image, his own likeness. Even then, the, the, the imagery there, the feel there is God is creating a son to love. Or we could go to Malachi chapter 3 where God actually, the scriptures actually connect this, this phrase treasured possession with the imagery of a, of a son. Or we could think back even earlier to chapter 4 of, of Exodus. You remember, remember what, uh, what Moses is to, is to go about and do? You, you go tell Pharaoh that, that he's been messing with my son, my firstborn son. So this phrase of treasured possession is even more precious than we might think. It's, it's really reflecting the imagery that the new status of Israel is that they are God's people. They are God's sons. Now, what role are they to play in expressing that? Well, he says there, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So as his sons, as his treasured possession, um, they are to, and I don't think these are two separate things, but they're just maybe as often the case in the Old Testament. It's, um, it, it, it doubles up and says, uh, similar things in distinct ways. For instance, what's the difference between a kingdom and a nation? Eh, not a whole lot. And yet you get the feel there. So they're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, there's a, they're a collection of precious treasure to him. And, 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 that, and that collection of precious treasure, they are to be a collection of priests. What's the role of a priest? Well, a priest really has an omnidirectional role. A, a, a priest is, is someone who um, represents God to other people. And a priest is someone who uh, represents people to God. And so in essence, in what is Israel's function to be as God's son? Israel is to be a priest in the sight of God. In other words, that Israel is to represent God to all the other nations in the world. And, 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 and Israel is to bear witness to the other nations about the nature and character of their God. Sometimes we think, that uh, things get pretty restricted and parochial in the Old Testament. In other words, God has his people, and he just don't like very many other people. And that's just a wrong reading of uh, the Old Testament. God has always started with the people, but, but, but as soon as he collects the people for himself, he turns right around and sends that people out on a mission. 
Even with Adam and Eve in the garden, well, their assignment in the garden was to take what they've been provided for in the garden and to go global with that, to turn the whole creation into a garden. Of course, they failed miserably in that assignment. Uh, or even when God chose Abram, uh, Abraham, uh, th that not through Abraham, God would certainly bless Abraham, but through Abraham, God would bless all nations, all peoples. We see now this Israel, Israel is now a treasured son of God. And yet as a treasured son of God, they are to bear witness to the nations of the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God. And they are to plead the case of the nations to God. They are to, they are to be priests. Secondly, relatedly, they are not just to be a kingdom of priests, but uh, 1A, 1B, they are to be a holy nation. In other words, another imagery of collection, and, and like a priests, um, they are to be holy unto the Lord, which the emphasis there is they, not only the function of a priestly duty, but, but they are to have a certain um, devotion and loyalty to the Lord above everyone and everything else. They are to carry out his work in complete faithfulness and loyalty to him. So going back to verse 4, the issue is not um, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my children. No, I would suggest to you that what he's really trying to hint at and suggest is you will, if you obey me, if you will, if you will do what I've explained, and, and that's really what chapters 20 and following do, they explain how they are to live, how they are to function, how they are to worship God, how they are to treat each other as neighbors. In other words, how, are, how they are to live both, both vertically and horizontally, if, if they function in the way assigned, then they will show the whole world what it looks like to be the treasured possession of God. They, they will show what it looks like to be a people who get to fully enjoy the blessings that God provides. They will get to be a people who accurately reflect and bear witness uh, to the, the, the preciousness of God as revealed in his law. In other words, Israel's function, and it will be through their obedience, through their covenant faithfulness, Israel's function, Israel's mission is to be a demonstration, a reflection. Israel is to show what it looks like to live in relationship with God. Israel is to show what it looks like to treat one another with love and justice. Now what's intriguing is that while you and I today are not technically living under the same covenant terms and arrangements in the old covenant as we do now today in the new covenant, nonetheless it's the same God who established that covenant with them who makes that the, the new covenant with us and what's so uh, fascinating is uh, Peter 
uh, states in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, the language we just read in Exodus 19. In other words, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a mission. And that mission is, is analogous to the mission that Israel was given. He says there in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a, royal, a, a, a holy nation. Do you, do you see the parallel there? He's just taking, he's saying, you know what Israel was? Uh, well, in this season, that's what you are. Uh, you, a, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You say, I don't know what to do with my life. Well, if you belong to the Lord, then there is help. <laughs> there is instruction on what we're to do with our lives. We are to figure out how to worship and live in relationship with the God who made us, the God who in Christ Jesus rescued us, and we're to reflect uh, his, the goodness of his design in our lives as we treat each other with love and justice. All the things that will be specified, if you would, in the subsequent chapters as he unveils the, the, the law and the judgments and the construction of the, of the tabernacle. So that's the mission from the Holy Redeemer that Israel has and that now in Christ Jesus we have. But let me, let me go forward here just a bit. And this uh, next segment is a bit naughty. So let's see if we can kind of forge our way through this. Um, he kind of, in, in, in verse 8, after the people hear all that, uh, that God wanted Israel to be, I, 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 this is, I don't know really what to make of this, but it, it makes me chuckle every time I, I read it. But in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Kind of a modern paraphrase of that might be, when you and I, with kind of a swagger, say, I got that. Well, I don't know what you and I do got. I do know this. Uh, Israel ain't got that. It won't take long to demonstrate all that you have spoken we will do uh, is going to come up short. But it's in that context that God begins to make the arrangements on how he is going to meet with this people. There's, there's something massive they don't quite understand about God yet fully. And I think that's really what he is going to begin to unveil in the verses to follow. The, the verses to follow are, are kind of fascinating. On the, remember, he says in verse 4 of chapter 19, I, I put you on eagle's wings and to bring you to myself. In other words, I, I, I want us to live in closeness with each other. I, I want us to live with a, a relationship. I, I want you to, I want to draw near to you and I want you to draw near to me. I want to meet with you and I want you to meet with me. And yet in this section, we begin to scratch your head and say, but that's kind of complicated, isn't it? Which one is it? Does God want to draw near to his people? Or because we begin to see that God begins to put parameters or limits around how his people will draw near to him. And that's specked out where we picked up last time. Um, let me just pick up at verse 11 and, and read down through the, 
the remaining part of the chapter if I could. And be ready on the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. And what he says next is just, this is, this is where it gets complicated. Um, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So in other words, I, I want you to meet with me on the mountain. And then he turns right around and says, but if you meet with me on the mountain improperly, it'll kill you. Let's, let's go on, verse 13. No hand shall touch him, uh, uh, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went, up, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God is coming down and the people are beside themselves with fear. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself have warned us, saying, set limits round the mountain and consecrate it, the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So God rescues Israel to bring them to himself, that they might live in a close relationship with him. And yet what verses 11 and following underscore to us, a very important lesson for Israel to grasp, and that is why God, while God wants his people to dwell with him, he wants them to understand that because of his sheer utter otherness, holiness, greatness, as an infinite, eternal being, they will need a go-between. They will need a mediator if they are to safely live in relationship with God. And so while 
the second half of chapter 19 is all about laying out a plan by which the people of Israel would be able to draw into closer proximity with, the, with God and, and live in relationship with Him. The second half of chapter 19 goes to great lengths to specify that because of the sheer otherness of God, it is not safe to gather in the presence of God without a mediator. There's more that we could say, but for the sake of time, we'll, 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 begin, to, we'll, just kinda, we'll begin to kind of leave things at that. In other words, in Israel would not be able to, on their own, even on the basis of their sure, confident statement, all that you've said, we got it, we'll do it. Their confidence, I would suggest, simply revealed that they don't understand the full extensiveness of the utter purity of the God that they are now being given the privilege to live in relationship to. And as God begins to draw near to them, and they begin to sense that holiness, they begin to experience that holiness, and, uh, and uh, without a mediator, it's not a comforting thought to them. Without a mediator, it's actually a very terrifying experience for them. God's brought us to himself, and now we are all going to die under the booming thunders and lightnings of the presence of this God. In fact, by the time we get to the other side of the Ten Commandments there, in the last part of chapter 20, the Israelites will say to Moses, we don't want to speak to him. You speak to him for us. It's like, yet yeah, they're beginning to get it. They need a mediator. And Moses' role, and of course, I'm confused. It's like, kind of, you know, when mom used to say to you as a kid, in or out, in or out, either get in the house or out of the house. Well, well, here in Exodus chapter 19, I don't know what the Lord is telling Moses. Come up, go down. Come up, go down. Come up, go down. Three or four times, he's go back, back and forth. But, but he's functioning as the, the mediator. He will be the man that the Lord provides so that the Lord will accomplish his desire to have a people who live with him. And yet, and yet, the people that he chooses to live with him will be a people who will need a mediator. Moses will be that temporary mediator. So that when we read the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, insofar as much tells us that Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. But Jesus now brings a better covenant. He is now a better mediator of a new covenant. So that Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and there is one man and there is one, I mean, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Or as Jesus himself would put it in John 14, 6, no one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is now the permanent, eternal, 
forever mediator between God and man. So that the very God who wants a people to be his treasured possession is now the very God who has put forth the, the means, his own son, so that you and I would be sons and daughters of the living God. That, that you and I would be the people who now are, if you would, the Son of God, the, His treasured possession. That in Christ Jesus, that you and I would now be His well-loved children who get to draw near to Him. That's why the writer of Hebrews is, uh, blows us away by reminding us. It reminds us of two things. It reminds us in Hebrews 10.31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, this this imagery here in Exodus 19 is not mere antiquated, outdated Old Testament stuff. It is still a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the wonderful thing for us to realize this morning is that while it is deadly to come into the presence of God, it is deadly to come into the presence of God only without a mediator. And God has put forth a mediator, his one and only son, who has done what I haven't done, who has lived a perfect life, fulfilled all righteousness, pleased his father in heaven flawlessly. And then this perfect son of God went to the cross and there at the cross bore up under the curse, the judgment, the stroke of God's wrath, so that all who, even this morning, look to Jesus we are the people who now belong to God. We are the people who now, through the blood of Jesus, can come boldly into the presence of God. And he won't chase us away and kick us out. It, we, it will be safe. In fact, it will be welcomed to be in the presence of God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. God still meets with his people, just like he met he desired to meet with Israelites through a mediator. And now through Jesus, we get to meet with our God. We get to live in an intimate relationship with him. And yet as his people, we are not quarantined off to live uh, pockets in monasteries. Uh, but we are now his people to, to be on mission, to show the entire world what a treat it is to be called children of God. What a blessing it is to know God's instructions and to live in the goodness and the generosity of God's good law. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you teach us and instruct us through your word. Father, thank you that just as you were so graciously and generously at work in rescuing the Israelites to bring them to yourself, Father, we know that now how much more do you do such a wonderful work of salvation through your son Jesus that now today not because of our mere ethnicity but now through trusting in what your son has done for us any and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and we're thankful father that when we're saved we're not merely pardoned but we are now your well-loved people we are now a people for your own possession oh and father may we live that out May we live out of the goodness of your kindness to us so that we are a reflection, a testimony of your good nature, your good character, that others might see Christ in us. 
and trust in Jesus as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.